We've been going through a series on the mission of Grace Covenant Church. You know, it's the beginning of the year, although it's almost February. Can you believe it? I'm glad you're happy about it. I, I want to be happy about it. I'm a little bit like, wait, but can we slow down? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you can't. It's true. And I'm just, I want us to be thinking about what we're here to do. Because like so many other things in life, you, be, you can become passive and you can kind of go with the flow in a way that, that really makes it so that you're not intentionally making steps in the direction of, of your ultimate purposes. And that can happen to us individually. It can happen to us as a corporate body. And so we wanted to spend some time thinking, what does it mean to be Grace Covenant Church? What's the mission? And so over the last two weeks and this week, we've been talking about the mission of Grace Covenant Church as helping people encounter Christ in a meaningful way, experience biblical community, and extend the kingdom of God. So two weeks ago, we talked about this idea of, of encountering Christ, of coming into the presence of Jesus Christ, primarily through scripture, but through prayer, and, and getting to know who this God is. Not just knowing about him, but, ha but having a personal uh, relationship with him. You know, there's a big difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. You know, I know about the president. I do not know him personally. You know, I, I know about a lot of people, but they're a much smaller group of people that I know personally. And we want to help people encounter Christ in a way that they know him. Last week, we talked about community, this idea that, that we are made to be a people that are drawn together, that we, we ought to be connected in relationship, and we ought to be pursuing that actively. And this week... <clears throat> I'm going to talk about extending the kingdom. Now, normally we would talk about, you know, evangelism, and we're going to talk about that some, but, but this idea of sharing the gospel. But I, I want us to broaden our view beyond an individualistic idea of what it looks like for me personally to extend this kingdom. And I want to draw a pic or paint a picture or allow scripture to paint a picture of what it looks like when a people of God pursue God in the presence of a world that has rebelled against God? What does it look, for a, look like for a people of God to pursue God in the midst of a world that has rejected God? And I want to put that before you and tell you that it, it produces a, a countercultural, kind of counter-worldly community that invites and compels other people to respond. This church body, by pursuing God, by, by living in light of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in your home and at work, by living with integrity in your marriage, in your neighborhood, when you commit yourself to Jesus Christ and then to the people whom Jesus has brought together. When you commit yourself to these people, and you do so in a way that you don't live in a silo, you don't live one way at church and another way at, at uh, Giant, one way at church and another way at, you know, at, at Wells Fargo, when you live a consistent, in, integral life, it is a compelling testimony to the power of God. So... 
We're going to read out of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and we're going to think to ourselves, what does an ideal church look like? Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Now, if you're new, we have a a tradition here of standing and reading the the scripture together. So we're going to go ahead and do that right now. If you're online, please join us anyways. We're going to stand together and we're going to read aloud Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day to day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your word in scripture, and I thank you for your word incarnate in Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit right now, would do a supernatural work in the people of God, through the word of God, applied to our hearts. That we would see that, that when we pursue you, when we, when we devote ourselves diligently and, and busily to, to you and to your people, that God, that, that it allows the world to see something different. And it calls the world to respond. God, I pray that we would be a people who are a testimony both in word and in deed to the grace of God expressed in our lives. And Jesus, I pray that your sacrifice, your death on the cross, your resurrection, your invitation of new life and salvation and forgiveness to those who would trust in you would be the foundation and the, and the seedbed out of which our lives would grow. Holy Spirit, be with us now as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. What does the ideal church look like? When I say that, I don't mean everyone looks like me and has the same political affiliation and it's the right kind of music, whatever you think that is. No, I want to ask the question, what does the Bible present as the ideal church? And I'm going to tell you that that Acts chapter 2, the writer Luke is kind of giving a picture of the ideal church. And and as if you were to go and continue to read, you'd see that the ideal church is still not the perfect church because there are issues that arise because there are still sinners in the church. Surprise, surprise. And, uh, And they have to address those issues. If you think that the ideal church is a church full of perfect people and you're looking for that, you won't find it. And even if you did find it, as I've heard it said so many times, by the time you get there, you'd ruin it. Because if you're anything like me, which unfortunately in this case you are, you're a sinner. And you're not perfect. And if you were to take a a perfect glass of water and just drop a little poison in it, 
you'd be drinking none of that water. It'd all be affected, right? Every church is affected by sin. And yet, we're going to see that there is an ideal that God wants us to, to attain or to pursue. So I want to give us four marks of an ideal church, four marks of an ideal church, and then two results when that church exists and grows in God. Four marks and two results. The four marks are this. There's a, a, a persistent devotion to a number of things. We saw that in verse uh, 42. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But there's a persistent devotion to some specific things. Secondly, there's awe, A-W-E, awe, wonder, fear, a, a, a trepidatious respect for God. Thirdly, there's a radical others' focus and generosity. There's a radical, and by that I mean it it's comes from the root, right? It's, it's in the depths of who we are. There's a radical others' focus. It's not just selflessness. You know, I wrestled with this, but it's not just selflessness because selflessness still focuses on, on who? Self. It's an others' focus, and with that, it's, it's an others-focused generosity. And finally, there's shared worship and life. Now, if I had, you know, I, I, I should have put that into like a, you know, four Ps, but I didn't come up with a good uh, synonym for awe. Uh, I could have said devotion and then, anyways, it's, so we have PARS, P-A-R-S, I don't know what to tell you. It's uh, persistent devotion, awe, radical others, focus, generosity, shared worship and life together. Those are the four marks. And then there's two results, favor with people and salvation for people. So let's look at what Luke has to say about the ideal church. If you look with me at verse 42, it says this. And they, talking about the, the, the Christians who had um, responded to the message of salvation, devoted themselves to four things, the apostles' teachings, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. There are four things that they were devoting themselves to. And the word here for devotion, it's not this kind of, I'm going to give one hour every Sunday to these four things. Right? If, if, you, were, if you were dating someone, and trying to communicate devotion, what you wouldn't do is say, I've got one hour for you, sweetheart, every week. <laughs> but don't take more than that, because I've got to go to lunch. Right? That's not devotion. That's one out of 168. Right? That, that is not, that's nothing. And I, I'm thankful that you're here, so please don't hear, like, you're doing nothing. No, if you got here, especially if you had kids, you did a lot, and you've already invested, I'm sure, hours. <laughs> I know that. Your day started earlier. It didn't start right at 10 o'clock. Thank you for being here, etc. cetera. But, but this word devotion, it has this idea of persistence. Uh, one of the ways that it was written or it was, it was defined is um, to be busily engaged with. And I don't mean busy like being a busybody or busy like doing things you don't need to be do, uh, doing, but busy in the sense of you're so involved with this thing that it's taking up your time, your energy, your thoughts, your resources, 
They were busily engaged with these four things, with the apostles' teaching. They were busily engaged with the apostles' teaching. Now, you might say, well, why? What's that mean? Well, it means that the apostles were the people who had been following Jesus Christ, whom Jesus had assigned as his chosen messengers. That word in the Greek, it means messenger. And they had been given the testimony or, or Jesus' teachings. And, and much of the teaching was oral teaching. And so they were, the, they were the keepers of the gate. They were the keepers of the testimony. In the early church, it's interesting, they would protect the bishops because the bishops who ended up being the people who the apostles taught were the ones who had the testimony. And, you know, there's this one bishop named Polycarp, and, and, and the, the Roman Empire was calling him to be executed, and they wanted to protect him and keep him safe because he was the, protect, he was the, he was the holder of this deposit that God had given to um, John, and then, uh, I'm not sure, I think it was Irenaeus, but uh, John, one of John's disciples who then discipled Polycarp. And so they were protecting the testimony that was given. These people were devoted to the apostles' teaching. We take it lightly because we have Bibles upon Bibles upon Bibles upon... Uh, yeah, you know, if I need the Bible, I'll just Google it, right? I can get 10 different English translations, at least a couple Spanish translations. We're, we're spoiled. You can get the Greek translation, multiple versions of the Greek translation of the New Testament, the Hebrew. You can access it easily. But are you devoted to it? They were devoted to it. Spurgeon talks about, um, Spurgeon was a famous pastor and preacher. He was fairly eloquent. And one of the things he talked about, you know, when when they cut you, do you bleed Bible? You know, what what do you bleed? You know, and and you you don't have to really struggle to think about what you're devoted to because it comes out, you know. What do you quote? What sitcoms do you quote? Who do you quote? What do you talk about? What do you think about? What do you dream about? You know, if you could be given, you know, $10,000 and an all expense paid trip to do something, to see someone, to be about something, what would that thing be? And that, that will likely help you to hone in on what you're devoted to. Not to say that these things are bad, but, but they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to fellowship, and that is a wonderful word that means nothing to us, especially if you've grown up in the church. Fellowship means donuts at the end of service, right? Maybe you even grew up and there was a fellowship hall, so it means going to the place where they have coffee and donuts, and you stand around awkwardly talking to people. No, but for them, fellowship was, it, you could, the word can mean partnership. They had partnered with the gospel. They, and, and when you are a partner, it's more than just, uh, I will have some donuts and coffee with you. In business, if you're a partner, you have some skin in the game, as it were. You've put in some money. You've invested some resources. And you're expecting uh, the, the organization to do well for your own sake, right? There's a, there's a symbiotic relationship there. They had partnered with one another. They had partnered with other believers, they were about the apostles' teaching. They were about fellowship. That means that, that they were pursuing relationship with other people in the church. Can you believe it? Yeah, exactly. They were connected in relationship with other people. And, and family, I love you, but if all of your participation in church is attendance on Sunday, you are missing out on so much that God intends to do through 
the means through the, the instrument of God's other people. If you are totally cool with hearing God tell you how you need to change, but you don't want to hear it from Bob, the deacon, or, or, or Janice, the, the deaconess, or, you know, or, or just the regular person, then you are you're limiting the ways in which God will move in your life. Not that he's incapable, but that you're, you're kind of stiff-arming it. They had, they had committed themselves to fellowship, to partnership. And we're going to see what that looks like. It's not just money, but it is money. Um, and we'll see that. They, had, they committed themselves to the breaking of bread. And, and that, that can mean a number of things. It, it can mean having a meal with one another. Or it can be more specific and speak to this idea of the Lord's table. And in the early church, there was a larger meal that the, the church would have. And part of that process or part of that, that experience was the Lord's Supper. And you see that explained a little bit in, in uh, 1 Corinthians because they're doing a bad job of it. But so for us, you know, rather than saying this is about specifically communion or the Lord's table or it's about, you know, having a lunch with a family and friend, I, I, I think of this as intentional uh, consecrated meals with one another. Sometimes those intentional consecrated meals involve the Lord's table where we remember the body that's broken and the blood that was shed for our sins of Jesus Christ, the body and blood of Jesus Christ for our sins. Sometimes it means me and, and Jermaine getting together and, and eating food together. There's, there's very few things that are more intimate than than shoving food in your mouth in the presence of other people. You know, there's very little hiding. And, and you know, if you're eating tacos, you know, there, it's a mess. You know, it's not a date food. You're not trying to impress anyone. You are who you are, right, when you eat a taco. There's no secrets. You like spicy food, it comes out. You don't like spicy food, it comes out. The food, it literally comes out. and you, It makes a mess. You know, I like Korean food. My mom's Korean. I eat kimchi. Kimchi is a wonderful, uh, what's the word? Um, it, 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 it takes a specific taste. Some people, they don't have that appreciation for kimchi. And so for me to invite someone over and have like rice and kimchi and bulgogi or something like that, uh, I'm inviting them into who I am. And and you may like it, or you may not like it. The smells may make you feel weird, but it, but there's an intimacy about it, right? You know, there are those meals that you'd cook for just anyone. You're like, ah, you know, I'll make ziti. It's kind of bland. It's basic, you know. And then those are meals that you'll you'll cook for someone you know, kind of who they are. They know who you are. But but there's this idea of breaking bread and sharing relationship with one another. It involved hospitality. Finally, they devoted themselves to prayer. And it says the prayers. So it's possible that there were, there were uh, written prayers that, that were being disseminated throughout the church. It's likely that it was probably written prayers and, and um, extemporaneous prayers, but it was done in the context of church relationship. It wasn't just, I'm going to go to my, my house and, and pray by myself. But no, I'm going to pray in the presence of other people, and they're going to hear my prayer and say, yes, God, would you do that? And then they're going to pray and say, God, would you heal this? And, and I'm going to say, yes, God, would you do that? And there's a corporate reality to that. I remember being in China. I, I went there in 2001 with a, a Korean church 
that had partnered with a Chinese church, both of whom were in Raleigh, North Carolina. And we went to a number of different places, but one of the places we went to was this, um, it, it was a boarding school for Chinese children, kids, teenagers, who had been saved and were now kind of taken to this boarding school. Some of them were orphans, but they all were Christians. It was amazing, right? And, and, and it was the kind of thing where literally we, we drove at night. I didn't know where we were. It was somewhere in Beijing. It was surrounded. It, it was secluded. And, and it, was, it was kind of a big deal. These kids were being trained in the gospel, language. <laughs> it was interesting. They had, I tried to teach them grammar, but they're like, we've got a grammar teacher. We just want to hear how you talk because you're American. I think they had, you know, some sort of British, uh, it was interesting. So we talked. But I remember walking into their worship service in, at five in the morning, which first of all, that's devotion, right? You want to know what devotion looks like? It's going and worshiping in a cold cement floored room on your knees at five in the morning. At that point, I, I'd have to confess that I'm devoted to, to sleep. And to not doing that. But we were there. That was what we were doing. And I just remember hearing them pray all at the same time. It wasn't this respectful, you know, you pray. You, you know, let's, let's hold hands and, and I'll squeeze you and it'll be your turn to pray. No, it, it, everyone was wailing. And I just, I came in the room and I wept. And it wasn't just because I was tired. Although probably some of that was sleep deprivation. But there was something amazing when the people of God got together and beseeched God. And together they said, God, would you move? God, would you move? And, and their desires and their passion and their heartache and their, their hopes and dreams were reverberating, not just in the room, but in the hearts of other people. That's the kind of thing that God wants to see. And when, God, when we see that, God moves. The, there, there's a section in Acts that we won't, talk to, uh, we won't go to, but, but Paul and Silas are in prison and they're praying and, and they're singing and, and their joint prayer and singing opens the doors and God, he, he sends an earthquake. It wasn't this personal, quiet. They were engaging God together. These people were committed to prayer, corporate, community, prayer. That was one of the marks, this, this devotion, this dogged pursuit of God. The second one was awe among believers. If you look at verse 43, it says, and awe came upon every soul and many, many wonders and, and uh, signs were being done through the apostles. The word there, awe, is, it's phobos. It's, it's the word that we get phobia from. So it's, it's not just like, oh, wow, that's neat. No, it's, it's this kind of gut-wrenching, shake-you kind of awe. You know, it, 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 it toes the line between, you know, <laughs> uh, when, when your kids are standing behind the, the closet door and they jump out and scare you. And you're like, ah! You know, or if you're the dad, you do that to your kids. 
and they think they're, they're going to die. But there's also some excitement about it because it's, their de- it's this weird, like, happy, sad, scary moment. There was awe in the church. And, and if you were to continue to read in Acts, you'd see that there were these moments where God in his holiness was trying to discipline and direct the church. And, and he even strikes a couple people down for their, for their disobedience and their, their dishonesty. And in that moment, everyone kind of clams up and they realize, oh man, we are messing with something that is not, not to be played with. It's not casual. It's not, it's not loose. God is not... He's a good God, but he's not a tame God. The writer of of, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, he talks about Aslan, this picture of Jesus Christ, and and he says he's a good lion, but he's not a tame lion. Our God is not a tame God. He's not your God in the sense that you you direct him and you tell him what to do, and, and he's about your agenda. Now, if your agenda lines up with his agenda, then he's about your agenda because it's his. But he's not waiting for you to say, you know, what do you want me to do, Eddie? What's on, you know, give me a to-do list. No, he's a holy and righteous and powerful God. And it is his ultimate grace and mercy that he would invite us into anything. And they were in this unique moment where God was uniquely um, forming and shaping the church. And he was doing these, these amazing uh, Miracles and signs and wonders among the people. That is not to say that God doesn't do that now. We don't, we don't see in Scripture that he says, I'm going to stop doing signs and wonders. I'm going to stop doing miracles. No, God still moves in power. We still see God move in power. We, we, we pray for healings. We pray for salvations. We pray for God to, to bring about change. We pray for God to break down walls and to break chains, as many songs say. And God is still capable and still able. And he still has a desire for his people to have a, a deep and abiding awe for who he is. And, and don't fool yourself and think that God isn't a God of fear. He doesn't want me to fear him. Jesus literally says it. He says, don't fear the person who can take your life. Fear the person who can take your life and your soul. The person who can you know, end this life and the one to come. It's not about whether or not you fear, it's whom you fear. You know, my dad, he did his best to be a good dad and a loving dad. There were moments where I feared the belt. I feared his discipline. It wasn't a, a, a fear of abuse. It wasn't a fear of, of something out of, out of balance. It was an appropriate respect for his position of authority in my life. And I understand that some of you, when you think about authority, you think about fear, you think about those relationships that were not appropriate, the, the, the things that were called discipline, but it was really not discipline. And I want to tell you that God is a good God. He's a faithful God. He's a loving God, and he's a gentle God, but he's also a holy God. There was awe. You know, uh, I, I was in, in high school, this is high school? Yeah, my first year of high school, we had moved. Actually, during my eighth grade year, we moved. But I, we had moved a lot of times. So I being the, you know, patient and loving and obedient ninth grader at this point, I said, Mom and Dad, I'm not moving. <laughs> I'm not moving. And so my dad would drive me. We moved from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina to Wake Forest. It's just a suburb, suburb outside um, Raleigh. So it'd, it'd be something like living in, in Sterling and moving to Leesburg or 
further west. And, and I said, you know, can we, can we, I didn't tell my dad anything, but I did ask strongly, can we please, can I please just go for this one year? Can I finish this out? So I continued to go to Millbrook High School in, um, in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I would walk from there to uh, this after-school martial arts thing. Because that's, my dad worked in Raleigh, and so he'd pick me up afterwards, and then we'd go home. And I remember walking, home, uh, walking to the, the karate place, or not karate, taekwondo is different, um, a taekwondo place, and I was kind of doing my thing and wasn't paying attention. I was crossing a road, and there was a truck, and the truck was in motion, and I was not paying attention. And I had this moment, and it was just amazing. I don't know what happens in your body, but all of a sudden I had spider sense, and I, everything slowed down, and I, you know, it was this whole, like, I see you coming. <laughs> and at the same time, I had no other superpowers, and I could not move. <laughs> so I could just perceive in slow motion that I was about to die. Like, it, had it gone differently, it would have just been me watching myself get hit by the truck. But he saw me. The end of the story is I lived, as a side note. I'm not dead. <laughs> um, but I remember seeing the car, or truck, and me just kind of like, get out of the road. <laughs> exactly. And I had this moment of just awe, fear, wonder, just this mix-up of emotions and adrenaline that happened. And, and when we consider the truck of God's judgment barreling toward us, ready to just end it, and then we imagine that Jesus, the truck doesn't stop, but Jesus stands in, in front of us and moves us to the side and he takes the hit, slammed to the ground, Blood everywhere. He dies. When we consider that, we ought to proceed with awe, with caution, with wonder, with some self-reflection. <laughs> the believers were seeing the power of God in the work of the apostles. They, were, they, were, they had heard about the power of God in the, in the resurrection of the Son, Jesus Christ. And the power of God is still at work in our salvation and healings and answering prayer and all manner of things. God is still at work. And what happens when you have this kind of awe happen, come on to people is it produces people who are not afraid of present circumstances. Right? There's a, there's a, there's a skip in your step when you realize you didn't die. Right? I, I remember being like, oh, everything is, the grass is greener. It feels so nice to breathe. They, they, were, they were being shaped by this wonder at, at a God who, who deserves righteousness but receives that from no one and ought to judge us for our sin, our disobedience, our, our willingness to say, God, I don't care about you. And yet he sends his son to die on the cross for our sins in our place, offering eternal life who, to whomever would respond to this gospel and trust in Jesus. And, and when... When they're thinking about this, it produces radically others-focused people who are radically generous 
What does it say in verses 44 and 45? And they, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to all as any had need. Do you hear how many times all who believed had all things in common? They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing to proceeds to all as any had need. If you read this, and, and this is, is, is your argument for a socialist manifesto, you're misreading it. What this was, was people who had seen God give all that he had for people to anyone who needed it and said, I want to be like that God. I have need, God. I am a sinner, and I need salvation. I need mercy. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. And he says, I will give that to you. And then me, in response, saying, I see that you have need. Let me give this to you. It is seeing that God loves me. God so loves me, and that word God so loves me, it's not how much he loves me, it's in the way that he loves me. So God loves me in this way, what? That he gave his only son, that he was generous to me, offering the most valuable thing that he could offer to me. So how ought I to respond to God's people? By being generous. How ought, <clears throat> how ought I to respond to the world? By being generous. This was not radical to them. Because they had seen what radical generosity looked like, and it was now the norm. God gives two commands in Luke. Uh, the writer Luke wrote Acts, and so I think he's 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 tying knots and stuff, but or he he's brought, bringing connections. And in Luke ten twenty seven, he says this. Jesus talked about this. Um, you shall love the Lord your God. Jesus is answering someone who, who's asked him the question, what's the most important command? And he says this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Two, two greatest commandments. In other places it says that that sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, if you want to take all the Bible and distill it down to something, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> Sacrificial, others-focused generosity treats everyone else as if they are you, right? If, if, you look at, if you think of yourself and imagine yourself in this auditorium and, and you see, oh, I see myself over here and, and I look hungry, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna get that person some pho because I love pho, right? That's, that's others-focused generosity and it flows naturally out of this command to love your neighbor as yourself, the point of this isn't to establish a policy. It's to embody God's ethic of loving your neighbor as yourself and loving one another. Right? When you say, I, I, I love church. I'm a Christian. I love others. How? What does that look like? You know, I'm, I'm thankful that you're here on Sunday. I'm thankful that you shake hands and you let someone go ahead of you on the, in the donut aisle. That's so very kind of you. Thank you. But, but are you committed to generosity? Are you committed to giving when it hurts? Because you see yourself in the people around you. And that generosity isn't just about money, it's about grace. You know, I'm gonna go out on a limb and say maybe there might be people in this room who have or will offend you. Maybe. Not because of you, but because of them. Right? But what would change in your relationships if you, instead of treating those people as the dirty 
rotten scoundrel. You know, you know, I mean, just look at X, Y, and Z. Instead of treating them like that, treat them that, like that person is you. Like, well, just cut them a break. I mean, they had a rough Monday, and have you met their boss? And, you know, they don't, if they don't get six hours of sleep, it's, it gets dicey. And, and all of a sudden, we, we have so much grace for ourselves. And God calls us to be that kind of generous with others. And if, and if you don't have that kind of grace for yourself and you struggle because you're hard on yourself, I would encourage you to look at the grace that God has for you. Start there. So they were radical, others-focused people, and they were generous people. Finally, 46 and 47, it says this. Uh, and day to day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with clad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The fourth mark is shared worship in life. Family, I want to invite you to, to be in relationship with one another. To ask how each other are doing. To pray for one another. To think about other people in this church on Tuesday. To call one another on Wednesday to join a small group and then attend that small group and not just say that you're a member, but to be a member. I want to invite you to share your life with other people and I want to invite you to allow people to share their lives with you. I want to invite you to, to carry the burdens of others, to pray for the sick, to tell people that you're sick to pray for the needs of others, to provide for the needs of others. Older men and women, I want to invite you to go talk to some younger men and women. Fathers and mothers who, who have their kids out of the house, I want to invite you to go talk to the people with, with, they're around, they've got babies. You know what they look like. They're tired and they're trying to find their child. If you see them, go talk to them. Help them. Or just tell them, you're doing okay. Love the people that God has given to you. You're not going to find a perfect church. You're not going to find people who perfectly fit your needs. You know, we've been listening to, what is it, Air One? And there's this goofy guy in the middle of the day. He's really funny. Sometimes he says profound things and sometimes he says ridiculous things and you just... It's, but one of the things, they have this thing where they say, uh, there are lots of nice people in the world, and if you can't find one, be one. And I love that. And, and there, are love, uh, there are a ton of loving people in this church. And if you can't find one, be one. They shared their lives. We're almost done. The, the food will wait, I promise. It'll be there. There we go. He knows. Eye on the prize. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, two results. So when you have these four things happening, there are two results. In verse 46, it says that, uh, no, sorry, verse 47, it says that they were having favor with all the people. And then it goes on and says, and the Lord added to their number 
day by day, those who were being saved. They had favor with the people. You know, there's, there, there are other places in the Bible where it says they're going to persecute you. And, and in Acts, it talks about how they persecute the church. So, I mean, what does that look like? Well, the reality is what? They had committed themselves and devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teachings. You know what the apostles' teachings weren't? You're okay. You have no problems. You don't have sin. You're great. The apostles' teaching were Jesus came to die on the cross for the sins that you and I have committed because we are wicked. Paul goes and he says, there is no one that's righteous. No, not one. We've all gone astray. We've all gone our own way. Right? In Romans, he talks about how everyone, everyone has exchanged the glory of God for the, the glory of, of created things. We all are in a bad way. And the world does not like that. The world does not want us to tell us that they're wrong. The world does not want us to say that, that we have not just made mistakes, like, oh, I tripped. But we have taken what we know to be good and right and said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want. And yet, they had favor with the people because they saw something about what it looks like to love other sinners. That, that's, people want to be included. And there's a kind of inclusion that, that is good and godly. And it's the kind that says, you and I, we're in a very similar position of needing Jesus. Come, let's go meet Jesus. It's me saying, I love you like I love myself. Let me be generous to you. Let me be kind to you. Let me be patient with you. And let me tell you a truth that may hurt your feelings, but it will bring you life and freedom. They, they were walking this, this, this balance of, of being light and salt in the world and, and testifying to the, the reality that we are in need of salvation, but also saying, and he has come. Salvation has come. Would you like to join the party? Right? It sounds like a good time. Day to day, attending the temple. <coughs> Maybe not the temple part, but, you know, imagine getting together. I recognize I'm more extroverted than some of you, and some of you are like, please, no. But it's a good thing. Um, breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. I mean, just be, imagine being around people who accepted you for who you are, understood that you were a sinner, and yet loved you nevertheless. They were just so happy that you're there. When people see that family, it is compelling. And for some, the Bible talks about how, how this gospel and the, uh, the, what, is, what flows out of the gospel for some, it, it smells like life. They see it, they get around it, and they're like, oh, that smells good. Oh, my goodness, someone is cooking right now. For others, it doesn't, it doesn't. It smells like death. But for those who it smells like life, it's, it's an invitation. It's compelling. It draws them in. Yes, we need to share this gospel. You, you need to... Share the gospel. You need to know the gospel that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place, defeating Satan's sin and death and offering eternal life to anyone who would trust in Jesus, who would turn away from their sins and trust in We need to know that. We need to share that. But that's not all we need to do. 
We need to be committed to God's people and, and be willing to live in light of that gospel to such a degree that the world can see. They had favor with the people. And finally, there was salvation for the people. And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. What I love about this text and what's, what's pretty radical about this text is it, it wasn't like, you know, Billy Graham came and people were being added to their number. Now, earlier in chapter 2, Peter, who was kind of a big deal, preached and people got saved. So it's not like that doesn't happen. That does happen. But some of you, you think that the only way that you can... Um, evangelize is by preaching on the street corner or, you know, asking if you were to die today, where would you go? Or, or, you know, and there are a lot of tools and those are important and, and we will go into those things as we grow as a people. Like we do those things. We believe in those things. Colleen does those things on the campus, right? We, we invite you to do those things. Pray for your waiter when you go to church or when, yeah, when you go to church, but mostly when you go to the restaurant. Um, you can do those things. But there's something about being, like this is the bigger picture that he's trying to give us of what it looks like when the church is doing what the church is meant to do. And when the church is doing what the church is meant to do, it's, it's kind of like a big magnet. When you start to move a magnet around, the other things that, that are attracted to it just, and they get connected. That's, you're, in, you're, you're being invited to be a part of that process. So, as we close, what are you devoted to? This is what I, I want you to go, maybe spend your lunch or, or get alone. Think about the way you spend your time. Think about the way you spend your energy. Think about the way you spend your money, the kinds of relationships you establish. What are you devoted to? And, and my goal in this is not to make you feel bad or, you know, oh, you need to go... My, my hope is that you will see that maybe I could make some changes, I could make some sacrifices, and I could pursue God with a greater deal of devotion. I could pursue the apostles' teaching. I could pursue breaking bread with, I could invite some people to church. I could invite some people to lunch. I could be praying. You know, we have a prayer service uh, the third Friday of every um, month. You could be there. We, we tell you about it, believe it or not. Some of you are like, I've never heard about that. You have. You have. Pastor Jermaine has mentioned it. You were just thinking donuts, 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 like some of you are right now. Like, I'm peanuts. Like, wah, 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 wah. Anyways, okay. Um, what are you devoted to? And, and my, my request is, would you consider living your life in such a way that these marks permeate your lifestyle? Would you, would you be willing to allow these marks to permeate your lifestyle? Would you pray and say, God, make me a person who participates in this kind of community life? I, I'm confident that God is going to extend the kingdom. We are called to reach the Route 7 corridor as a part of the larger vision to reach this city, to win the city. The, the metropolitan D.C., Virginia, Maryland area. We're going to do it, not because we're awesome, but because God is awesome, and he's building his church. And I want to invite you to be a part of that. I want to invite you to be in church on Sundays in a meaningful way. I want to invite you to be in a small group in a meaningful way. I want to invite you to meet someone today, to talk to someone, to step out of your own comfort zone and say, hey, I've seen you at church. What's your name? How can I pray for you? 
It may be awkward. It probably will be. Let's be honest. But if we can both say, hey, this is awkward. Yeah, this is awkward. We both know it's awkward. Let's just move on. And what, what will life look like a year from now? What will that relationship look like a year from now? What will life look, life look like five years from now? If we are pursuing these things, God, I pray that you would, you would make us this kind of people. I thank you that that is your goal. I thank you that you, you love us enough to put us in a family, imperfect, incomplete, but a family nevertheless. And, and, and what a wonderful thing, God, that you would choose to, to extend your kingdom by means of us loving one another and sharing that love with the world. Lord, would you give us that, that devotion? Would you give us that awe and wonder of who you are? Would you give us that radical other, other's focus and generosity? Would you, would you do that, Lord? Would you give us that shared life and shared worship? I pray that over this people in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, family.